Sugar Nerds. We're here with Mary Guzman, founder and CEO of Crown Jewel Insurance. Some of you might know her as Scary Mary, the Cyber Queen. We're going to be with her today and ask her a couple questions about her new company, Crown Jewel Insurance, and kind of get some background on her life in the cyber world. That sounds exciting. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so we'll start with some basics. Um, Crown Jewel Insurance, where did it come from? Why'd you start it? What was your inspiration? Well, I spent 30 years, roughly, as an insurance broker, and the last 15 years or so, I focused almost exclusively on technology and media-related risks. I was there at the beginning, um, as long as 20 years ago, in the development of the first cyber products, and having watched all of that evolve and seen how the market responded to all of those issues, I became ultimately a little bit frustrated with the insurance industry's slowness to adapt to some of the emerging risks that I um, struggled with, with, along with my clients, around vendor and third-party risks and specifically trade secret and other intellectual property risks that weren't very well addressed in the market. And so rather than continue to uh, be frustrated in that arena, I thought I would take a step back or take a step out of the brokerage world and try to go develop some solutions, risk management solutions and insurance products to address those risks head on. And that's what I've done. Well, that's super interesting. It kind of explains why you are called a disruptor in the industry. I know you kind of turn red at that name, but it's because <laughs> your innovation is impresses people all over the country. Um, so I know we have four products under the Crown Jewel brand now. Um, how'd you come up with these four products? Do you want to go through each of those? Sure. Thank you. Um, the first product, which I would call kind of our signature product, if you will, is a first-of-its-kind trade secret insurance product. We call uh, the suite of solutions that wrap around that signature insurance product, Crown Jewel Protector. And the whole idea there was to develop um, really a front-to-back-end enterprise risk management solution or process that could be dropped in to an overarching enterprise risk management program at a company who maybe hadn't had the foresight or the time and energy to build a fully robust intellectual property risk management program. Um, and what I mean by that is that a lot of organizations, I think, intuitively understand that their business processes and some of their recipes and formulas and drawings and designs are all inherently valuable, but they hadn't gone to such lengths as to formally identify those and track their progress uh, around how they're protecting that information asset and and potentially even the future value of that asset to make sure that what they're doing from a risk management standpoint aligns properly with the value of that asset. Um, and, a, and a lot of the reason for that is that those assets are homegrown, generally speaking, and they kind of sneak up on you in value over a period of time. The, the things that sit within research and development are more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, intangible assets that could prove to eventually be intellectual property assets where they have true intrinsic value and you put protections around them. Um, but until they get to that point, you know, organizations tend to forget about them. And, and you might find that a lot of your most valuable trade secret assets like business processes sit outside of research and development. They simply are around the way that you move your product to its destination faster and better than your competition that makes you, you know, 
the better choice for your customer as opposed to the actual product that you're delivering. And so sometimes organizations don't think to really try to put a value around that um, or know that it can be valued. And so we've you know, reached out to some experts in the field to help us help our clients not only identify and you know, stratify those assets based on their level of importance to the organization and how well they're securing those assets so that they get a risk score, but then we have an independent third party going in to put a fair market value on those assets. And the reason we did that is because we feel that once you can monetize an asset like that and turn it into more where it acts more like a tangible asset, then you can insure it. And so really, for in simple terms, what we're trying to do is take an, a valuable intangible asset, monetize it and so that it can be treated more like a tangible asset. For insurance purposes, it can potentially be used then for lending and investment purposes to, you know, to be used as collateral or, or the insurance proceeds can be used as collateral. So I really think it's a game changer for a lot of companies. So you would say that your innovation kind of protects other people's innovation. That is the goal. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about this business is, uh, you know, being able to or, or needing to really kind of peel back the onion along with our clients and try to foresee risks that may not be so obvious to most people that are coming down the road. Um, we've been doing that for a really long time in the cyber and media, you know, industry. Um, but in this particular case, you know, there are a lot of organizations, especially coming out of the pandemic now, that have reinvented themselves and are much more online um, than ever before. And, you know, companies are creating all kinds of innovations around climate change and pandemic risk and all kinds of things. But without tangible assets to be used as collateral or you know, if a company is in early stages and doesn't have a lot of cash flow, it's going to be very difficult potentially for them to get interested parties in investing in them or lending them money. And so this monetization of these assets and the ability to insure them will allow them to attract additional capacity, or excuse me, capital, um, but also protect their most valuable asset at the same time. Right. So before we get to the other three products, just hearing that concept, I know a lot of people will immediately think about private equity and venture capitalists, because it sounds like that's going to protect what the investors are putting their money into. Yes, and, and particularly later stage, you know, private equity companies who may not be there, you know, as VC or seed funding at the very beginning where there isn't much of an asset to protect. It's more of just an idea at that point. But as it moves along the scale and, you know, and starts to become a more, you know, um, an asset that can be valued more easily with more predictability and less risk around the future sales or savings that are generated uh, specific to that company by that asset, um, we can really provide a lot of value there. And I think uh, one of the biggest challenges for private equity companies today or any investor that's looking in the technology or biotech or autonomous vehicles or aviation, you know, any a lot of different um, industries, chemical industry, where um, organizations are not necessarily moving to, to patent something because as soon as you file for a patent with the USPTO, you have to divulge a lot of information about your crown jewels in that application process, which then invites people to come along and try to mimic it or, or mimic something that looks very similar. This way, if you leave it in its trade secret state, you're, you're not having to un, unveil what your you know, secret sauce is or your crown jewels 
in order to try to protect it, which is kind of an oxymoron to begin <laughs> with. Um, but if we find those organizations that we can, you know, allow to to have this insurance, it really can be a game changer for them. And it is this trade secret insurance is the only policy out there that private equity companies or other lenders or investors can lean on to ensure that their investment in a company that doesn't have tangible assets or a lot of tangible assets where the underlying asset and the reason they invested in that company is intellectual property and their ideas and designs, um, this is the only insurance that will cover the underlying value of that asset today. That's crazy. I'm sure that's going to be a game changer for people that don't even know that you can insure trade secrets. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I would hope so. And the other, you know, one of the other really nice side benefits before we move to the other products is that even though this is a first party insurance product, meaning there's no defense expense coverage and li no liability coverage for settlements and those kinds of things, um, therefore it doesn't cover infringement allegations against our insured meaning that another company alleges you've infringed upon their intellectual property, a patent, for example. Um, it does provide, through the underwriting process and specifically through what I think is a groundbreaking technology software platform that's blockchained, um, that we can use later on as perfect evidence to show um, in a defensive position, if you're alleged to have infringed upon somebody else's intellectual property, that you actually had prior use of that asset and you were the one who initially developed it. Uh, part of the problem today or a huge you know, concern or issue in the patent infringement world um, is that most organizations don't have the structure in place or the process in place to be able to prove that they in fact had prior use of an asset and this blockchain platform gives them that defensibility without having to even potentially even secure insurance or spend a lot of money on discovery and defense expenses or settle a big claim. So it has a side benefit of acting as an infringement defense, even though there's no insurance infringement coverage under the policy. That is, it's crazy that, you know, no one's done this before you. It's, it's crazy that, you know, over, what is it, 80% of the value of the S&P is in intangible assets? It is rumored that 85% oh. of the value of the S&P 500 <laughs> is in intangible assets, most of which is in intellectual property, which is insane. So if you think about it, the insurance market right now on a first-party basis is covering the value of 15% of the assets of the S&P 500 and not covering the other 85. So clearly Just the tip we, of the iceberg. Yeah, tip of the iceberg. <laughs> so clearly we as an industry are missing the point. Um, and I think a lot of clients, frankly, are sort of asleep on this issue. And so we're trying to educate people and, and wake them up to it. Well, I'm sure that you could talk about trade secret insurance for the whole day, but one of the exciting parts of this is that we're kind of announcing that the Crown Jewel brand is taking over, taking on these other three products. So um, do you want to talk a little bit? We want to start with um, VendorTech? Sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're excited about this. So um, we have three other products that are different than Crown Jewel Protector in that they don't, they are not really intended to be a full suite of risk management services. Uh, we didn't mention the post-breach services or the post-law services under Crown Jewel Protector, which include litigation on the back end if your trade secrets are stolen, which is a huge benefit as well. Um, but these other three products are Lloyd's cover holder products, where mm -hmm. we actually have the ability to write them on behalf of Lloyd's of London. Um, and they are really 
all three of them are, are sort of targeted at technology and media risks of smaller companies that are the concern of their much larger business constituents. And so in the case of VendorTech, for example, one of the things that everybody knows in the industry today that's a huge problem is that third-party liability um, or outsourced service provider liability risk is a huge issue, um, or even first-party risk, um, for your reliance upon those third-party service providers. And SolarWinds recently was a fantastic example of that um, and sort of caught the caught the news media uh, by storm. A fantastic but horrible example. <laughs> yes, fantastic but horrible example. And there are many, many others out there. And I think um, there seems to be a significant disconnect between how companies view their own risk management and contractual um, sort of mitigation strategies around third-party service providers and what is the real outcome. Uh, there are a lot of surveys out there. That, and in fact, there's a blog post that we wrote specifically about this. Um, about the disconnect between how well you think you're managing them and what the real outcomes are, which point to, you know, 50% of all companies in the past 18 months have had a significant breach at the hands of a vendor, and something like 35% of them involve the disclosure of corporate confidential data, which could be trade secrets, 29% were private data, and the vast majority of them caused some sort of business interruption and, or extra expense. Um, at the part of what would be the enterprise or the larger insured that we're talking about here, the larger sponsor here that we're talking about. So what we've done is trying to address the systemic risk that is a problem for, for many, many small to medium size and even large vendors, but we'll take them off the table for the moment because generally speaking, they have very big balance sheets. But those small to medium size vendors that might have 50 or 100 clients, for example, that are maybe all in the financial institution industry. Mm -hmm. If the FI industry is targeted, you know, specifically by a group of hackers and um, that vendor goes down, you know, for a, for a significant period of time or has a breach of all of its confidential information and that of its customers, then their own insurance limit, the vendor, is going to be gone very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the fact of the matter is that most mid-sized companies might carry enough insurance for, you know, they might have 10 or $20 million in limits where that might be their exposure to a single customer. And so you as the customer, the buyer of that service, should rightly be concerned about their limits being gone in the event of a systemic event. What inevitably happens is that the organization that is contracting with the vendor wants them to indemnify them for it not only direct but indirect or consequential loss. They want them to uncap their liability around security breach and especially around disclosure of intellectual property and they want them to indemnify them um, without any you know significant limitations of liability. The vendor however is going to push back hard against that because they have their own interest to, to insure um, and to make sure that their own insurance program stays intact. And so it's a constant battle. Often the insurance and indemnity provisions can literally be the last thing that gets solved in a big contract or even a small contract. And we see it over and over again on the brokerage side where clients are coming, us, coming to us saying, these guys just won't comply with our indemnity insurance requirements what should we do? They've got access to, you know, millions of customer records. Or if they go down and we go down, we're out, you know, tens of millions of dollars in a, in a short period of time. 
So we designed a contract-specific insurance program that would inure only to the benefit of the enterprise or the sponsor organization. So the policy only covers the liability from that vendor going back to our enterprise that's sponsoring the program so that their, the rest of the insurance limits of the vendor are preserved for the rest of their clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows them to provide better indemnity and limitation of liability wording in their contracts. Um, and in, in addition to that, um, you know, obviously the sponsor can sleep at night knowing that at least there's some dedicated limit that will come back to them and that the policy wording is very broad. Um, one thing that I think surprises a lot of people when we're asked to review the vendor cyber and E&O wording on behalf of our clients is that the policies, some of them are not written very well and they have very broad breach of contract or contractual liability exclusions, which I promise you are going to be a problem when you have a loss. And so we try to take all those issues off of the table and um, it's an exciting program. Nobody else is offering it in the market and um, there's no limitation on the number of vendors per sponsor that can participate. Mm-hmm. And um, we think this could be a really a nice um, infill for what's going on in the market right now. I agree. And that's, I think you addressed well how this product can benefit not only the enterprise, but the vendor as well. Because, you know, more limit, more coverage is plain and simply more coverage for all the people that they're serving. So I think a lot of people, when they first hear that idea, they're like, well, what's the incentive? What's the incentive for the vendor? But you do, you addressed it really well. Is that, you know, that coverage can go back to your your biggest clients. That way, your other coverage can go to cover your other clients. Because in a systemic breach, they're like it's very unlike very unlikely for them to have the right amount of coverage. That is correct. And the other thing that's interesting is we've partnered with a company out of Israel called CyberRight. You may not have heard of them. Very quickly, let me give them a plug. They're Fantastic. And um, they have some risk assessment tools that look from the outside in to open ports and they look on the dark web for passwords that are for sale and all. And, you know, there are a lot of companies that do something similar. I happen to like their methodology of doing what they do. Um, But in addition to just looking at the vulnerabilities or the threat environment that a vendor lives in, they can actually associate a vendor risk with a specific quantifiable monetary amount. So they could say to a sponsor, you know, this vendor X, based on our, you know, quick and dirty external assessment of them, you know, equates to $7 million risk to your organization. It's obviously going to be an estimate. Nobody's going to hold them to that actual number, but it does help the sponsor organization, you know, determine what is an appropriate, um, type of limit to be asking for from that client rather than just stabbing in the dark. Well, that's a really good benefit um, people get with the premium. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to move on? I know you have two products left, but I think they're kind of similar. Do you want to talk about them together? Yes. Oh, before we do that, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, very quickly on mm-hmm. the vendor um, issue, um, we can also offer contract-specific coverage to non-technology vendors. Oh, okay. That coverage is for cyber only. So to the extent that you rely significantly on your suppliers of products, you know, uh, for example, and their their flow of products to you is disrupted due to a cyber event. Mm -hmm. Let's want to give an example. Like if you're a restaurant and it's someone that's supplying biscuits, yeah, (laughs) whatever the case may be, and you and they're disrupted, their supply chain is disrupted due to a cyber related event can't Mm -hmm. be because of something else. 
um, and or you know your shelves go empty because you don't have product XYZ on your shelf for weeks at a time um, or even days at a time and that's one of the main draws the reason that people come into your shop to buy that product like chick-fil-a sauce for example <laughs> maybe chick-fil-a chicken chick-fil-a chicken um, but um, yes so we can provide cyber coverage for them for that disruption but also for um, privacy breaches that are caused, you know, by that third-party service provider. Um, and then the other two products, as you mentioned, are similar. Um, they are designed to be pushed out, again, from a larger organization out to their constituents over whom they should have a concern and or an insurable, you know, interest um, for different reasons. One is Franchise Guard, mm-hmm. where a franchisor you know, might have their own, its own really broad cyber program with a big tower and lots of limits, but their franchisees, their non-owned locations basically, are not covered generally by that franchise or program. And so there are, there are things that are not controlled by or mandated by the franchisor outside of, for example, the point of sale system or the card processing um, that might be controlled by the franchisor, there are still plenty of risks sitting down at the store location level. And I'm just using a restaurant as an example, but it could be an auto dealership, it could be a gym, could be a, you know, a lot of different types of organizations. But to the extent that there's an in-store risk, like a card swipe risk or you know, uh, an employee with bad behavior who's taking pictures with his cell phone of people's personal and confidential information and selling it on the dark web, any number of things could still cause either a privacy breach or disruption or outage at the location that's not controlled by the franchisor. Those franchisees really need their own cyber insurance coverage because Number one, 60% of all small businesses go out of business after six months following a cyber breach. That is a scary, horrifying statistic. That is a scary, horrifying statistic. Yes. Is that, that one of those statistics might be um, how you got the nickname, Scary, scary. Mary. <laughs> yes, scary Mary, because I do tend to scare people sometimes when I throw out these these statistics and well, everything. I'm just glad they're facts. You yes, know? I'm yes. just glad they're real. Um, but so they, they need to be concerned about that for that reason. But also, you know, frankly, the franchisor has some vicarious liability exposure potentially associated with that franchisee. They have the reputation risk that they need to worry about. And so both parties have a vested interest in making sure that not only they have the insurance to withstand a loss, but for small businesses, as important is that they know what to do when they have a breach. So mm-hmm. we have, you know, embedded built-in breach response services for um, forensics investigations and um, credit monitoring and notification and all of those kinds of things that might be your responsibility or most likely would be your responsibility following a breach. Most small businesses have no idea how to handle that. And so having the ability to pick up a phone and call one number and have somebody handle everything is really beneficial to them. And then similar to that is what we call investor guard. Same mm-hmm. exact concept as franchise guard, except this is for registered reps, registered investment advisors who, you know, sell, you know, and consult around annuities and benefits and life insurance and other things, either from their home office now in the work from home environment or Mm -hmm. from a small office, but they trade on a larger platform of a big employer, um, you know, 
but they but they are a big company, but they're not employed by that company. Mm-hmm. So they use their platform to provide, you know, and make trades and provide their services, but they still have their own risk because they're not employees. And so this coverage is intended to again be pushed out by that advisor services company to the registered investment advisor. Um, on the lower end to make sure that they are able to withstand and respond to an information security related breach. Right. And as you, as you mentioned, I'm sure that those, the number of hacks and and how vulnerable they are have increased significantly in the pandemic environment with them being at home. Yeah. It's been huge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely mind boggling how much the risk has increased. And um, you know, ransomware, I think, is everybody's biggest concern by far. And we're seeing a lot of changes in the market in general to significantly sublimiting the amount of coverage that's available for ransomware and increasing the amount of scrutiny around controls. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll see some of that reflected in the application and how people can qualify for this insurance. But at the end of the day, it makes everybody a better risk. Well, thank you so much for sharing your products with us. Thank you for having me. Um, Again, that was Mary Guzman, founder and CEO of Crown Jewel Insurance. Um, You can check her out on LinkedIn. Um, They have a Twitter as well and Facebook, or you can visit their website at www.crownjewelinsurance.com. Thanks for listening.